بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي سبحانك لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا سبحانك لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا سبحانك لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا أما بعد Respected friends, dear brothers and sisters and dear listeners, students, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Inshallah we will... Um, go over some of the points that we go over some points of the verses that we covered last week uh, from the starting of the story of Musa and Khadir we did read uh, maybe six or seven verses and translated those but there are some points that I still wanted to cover inshallah and we'll uh, we'll do that before we move forward to the next verses um, remind reminding us that this surah was revealed as a gift of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to all of us uh, and in response to the questions that the Yahud asked the disbelievers of Makkah to ask Rasulullah they asked him, they said, go ask him about uh, the soul, go ask him about the sleepers of the cave, and go ask him about that person who traveled the world, the east and the west. So that's the next and the last final story of Dhul Qarnayn is still coming. And the sleepers of the cave, of course, we've already done. And the aspect of the soul that's in the previous surah, Surah Bani Israel. But th- that became a means of this whole surah being revealed. And what Rasulullah was uh, delayed in his response because he could not answer from his own. He said, I'm going to answer what Allah will share with me. I'm going to answer it tomorrow. But you all remember, he didn't say inshallah. And the answer got delayed by over two weeks. So in reality, this is actually a sign of prophethood. That if he was making up his own things, he could have just made up the answers. But the fact that he delayed it and said, I don't have an answer yet. I'll let you know soon. And I still don't have it. I still don't have it. What does that tell you? He is not getting it from his own side. <laughs> if he was making it up, you would have the answer. Why would he want to face the people uh, who are making fun of him every single day and he doesn't have an answer? If he wanted to so-called save his face, he would have just made it up. But that's the thing. He doesn't make up things. Everything he shares is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And hence, that's why he did not share anything. He waited till Jibreel eventually did come in, share with him, uh, the answers. So it's interesting that his, the delay in answering the uh, questions in reality, that itself was what? The proof of prophethood. Uh, but my beloved dear brothers and sisters, haqiqat, the reality is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses yahdi man yasha wa yudhullu man yasha. Gives guidance to whoever he wishes and allows to mislead whoever he wishes to mislead. He allows to, whoever he wants to uh, mislead, they are misled. So yaqeen and belief of the Prophet's words, after all of this story was revealed, you think those Yahud accepted Islam? You think the Mushrikeen accepted Islam who made this whole big effort? They went all the way to Medina. They said, give us a list of questions we can ask. And then they made a big fuss that wires the answers. Well, here you go. The answers are here in great detail. Are you willing to accept Islam? No. Right. Well, Alhamdulillah, we got the benefit of Surah Al-Kahf through their whole you know, uh, 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 show they put on there. But they didn't accept Islam. So those who are not going to do so, all the question and answer, no matter how many questions of there you answer, they're not going to get hidayah if it's not meant for them. Okay? If, it, if it's not meant for them, they're not going to get hidayah. That's, that's a scary point. What you see from this story, if you just think about it, that there are people who, it's, hidayah is not meant for them. You can bring them to the, as they say, you bring them to the well, but you can't force them to drink. You give everything to them, they still don't get it. So we need to ensure that we you and I and our children and our spouses and our parents and our siblings are not from those wretched group of people. 
who have been given every opportunity to believe in Allah, who have been given all the proofs, who have been given every sign that we need in our daily life, yet we continue, Allah forbid, hopefully not, continue to disbelieve and deny and not appreciate the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, and deny His existence. There are some wretched souls like that, many, many wretched souls like that who just don't get it. So uh, when you are not able to explain something to the person in front of you, uh, or he's not willing to accept, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are on falsehood. That is why when we debate with a non-Muslim on some issue, if you lose a debate, what does that happen? What does that mean? It means that when it comes to mental gymnastics, maybe he's better than you. When it comes to eloquence, when it comes to uh, you know, presenting logical arguments properly, he knows how to do those things better. It doesn't mean anything about the truth and the veracity of the Qur'an or deen being uh, compromised. That is how we go into a debate. That I might lose, frankly speaking, because I'm not the best person who's, who's well-versed in all of these things. But that faith is something different. Yaqeen is something different. Iman is something different. And debating and, and presenting your arguments properly is something different. So we should all understand that very well. That our belief is on the Qur'an and the words of Allah 100% لا There's no doubt in it. It is not based on some new proof that comes out. It's not based on a debate that we heard on, online that was very convincing. Because that type of faith may easily be uh, you know, uh, shaken up by another debate that you hear that is not so convincing. Or in which the Muslim debater unfortunately fails and doesn't do a very good job. So what are we going to do about our deen then? What are we going to do about our, our faith? So hidayah comes in, in from Allah and that's why we need to keep on asking Allah رَبَّنَا لَا تُزِقُولُوبَنَا بَعْدِيَتْ هَدَيْتَنَا وَهَبْلَنَا مِنْ لَدُنْكَ رَحْمَةً إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ الْهَابُ Oh Allah, do not allow our hearts to become crooked after you have given us guidance. And grant us your mercy from your end. Indeed, you are the best of those who give gifts. So please renew our niyyah. Why are we here? We're here to please Allah. We're here to build our relationship with the Qur'an. We're here to uh, get our hearts rejuvenated through, through the Qur'an. We're here to find question, answers to our questions, solutions to our problems. All of, all of you who are listening online, those who are listening here, all of us, let's please renew this intention. Ya Allah, allow this dust to become a, a means of reju, re, rejuvenating my faith and bringing me back on the right path. Oh Allah, allow me to hear and share that which I need to most in this occasion. Ameen Rabbil Alameen. So this is one of those four stories through, the, through that Shana Nuzul and Sababun Nuzul and reason of revelation that, we, that this Ummah was given. My beloved brothers, I want to remind you that Surah Al-Kahf, we haven't spoken about this, this thing I was speaking about in the first few sessions multiple times, is something we need to all work on memorizing if we haven't done so. And we need to make a habit of reciting if, we haven't, if we're not doing so. Please, I remind myself and all of you to go get back to recitation of Surah Al-Kahf every single day. Every single day. Every single day, all of it. If you can't do all of it, then at the very least, first 10 and the last 10 every single day. And that, that's something, if you're coming for this tafsir, this is the least we should be doing. Least is that first 10 and last 10 every single day. Put it on your alarm. Put it, one of the brothers shared with me right before the tafsir, he said, when he's getting out of bed every single day as he's forcing his blanket off of himself, he said, Alhamdulillah, he begins his day with reading the first 10 and last 10 of Surah Al-Kahf through the barakah of this tafsir. And Surah Yasin while he's still in bed. What a great way to start. 
So this is something that we need to all please make a habit and teach your children to recite the first 10 and the last 10 verses of the Qur'an. Second thing is, you remember what, we told, what we've shared from the beginning so many times, that this surah is the antidote to Dajjal. And not just Dajjal, but the Dajjali fitan that come before that. Dajjal is a very big, powerful, most powerful agent of Iblis. So before his, or like you have when the president comes, the secret service and all the uh, departments arrive two, three weeks in advance in a foreign country to make, to make arrangements for his arrival. And how much effort is put into all of that. So Dajjal is, is, the, is the greatest fitna that the world has ever seen. Not two, three weeks, not even two, three years. Decades before his arrival, the agents of shaitan are coming and preparing and making the ground fertile and making the hearts fertile to accept him. That old stage is being created before his arrival. So that's happening as we speak right now. How are we supposed to be able to see through that? What, what is the special goggles that you need to wear to be able to see these shayateen of, that are come in preparation for the arrival of Dajjal? That goggles and eyeglasses you need is going to be given to you through Surah Al-Kahf. So what our teachers have told us again and again is recite this regularly. And if we know someone who is having problems of faith and iman, then this is, the, this is your, <clears throat> your, your medication for them. The number of people who are reaching out for help now, whose children are leaving Islam, is staggering. And what is so interesting is the people who reach out to us are not people from irreligious families. Almost all of the people I speak with or who reach out to me for help are children of practicing religious families. And there's not a week that goes by where we don't receive these messages, meetings, calls, texts, etc. And it's, it's so shocking. Each one is more shocking than the previous one because you look at the father, you look at the mother, and you would never believe in a hundred years that this incident would be happening in such a home. In such a home. Such a practicing, God-fearing, muttaqi, knowledgeable, you know, people. But yet, the children, unfortunately, are turning their backs towards Islam. Turning their backs on their parents. Refusing to speak to them. Becoming disrespectful. Stop praying. Right? Saying all sorts of things. And this is starting up as young as 6th graders, 5th graders, 7th graders, maybe even, actually yes, 4th graders. Many of these boys and girls have already completed the memorization of the Qur'an. Okay, many have spent time in Islamic schools, have spent time in Islamic seminaries, in madrasas, in various types of Islamic settings. But in grade school, college, high school, junior high, depending on where they are, they are turning their backs towards deen. It's not only, you cannot say it only happens in college. You can't say that. Only happens in, in university. It's happening at younger ages as well. And uh, so people are wondering, should we get, what should we do? We need to get a counselor involved here. We need to get this involved. What is a counselor going to tell you? How is he going to say? Which counselor is going to understand? Say, oh, he's a, she has the right to do whatever she wants. Freedom, whatever you want. Why are you sitting there and trying to force him to be religious in the first place? Right? Let them do whatever they want. That's what they're going to tell you. And here you are just shocked, like how, but how? Where did this all start off from? Where did it, I, I never saw it coming. I never saw, I did all the right decisions. Many of them have said, I've made, one, one parent told me this week, or last week, subhanAllah, was, you know, such an honest, bitter truth she was sharing with me. She said, you know, we don't drink, 
We don't, we don't go club, we don't have bad company, we eat halal, we, our income is halal, everything, mashallah, we did the, the, the stuff. We did everything, we sent our kids to Islamic Sunday school, maybe even Islamic school, some of them. But she said, we thought this was sufficient. Now that our children are in college, in undergrad, and grad school, now we realize this is absolutely not sufficient. If only we could go back into life 15-20 years ago, rewind our, rewind our life, we would have made the decision of teaching our sons and daughters strong yaqeen, strong iman, the, the words of Allah and His Rasul, the haqiqah of La ilaha illallah, the attributes of Allah, the names of Allah, and not just yaqeen, but also the knowledge of deen. We would have taught them all this. We thought Sunday school was sufficient. We thought sending them going to Jum'ah Salah was sufficient. Now that our children are in college, and we propose this idea, that how about we go study some deen, they laugh, they, they scoff at us, they say, what are you talking about? We've got nothing, we, want, we need nothing, none of that stuff. So we thought that this was sufficient. My dear brothers, why is this happening? For our elders, this is the message to them. It's because, uh, you, you know, your generation, if you're let's say 50 or 40 years old and you were born overseas or 50, 60 years old, your generation and the challenges you had is very different from, the, from the, your children's generation and the challenges that they're going through. So if you had Sunday school or let's just say you used to go to your, Molana Saab used to come to your house and teach you some Quran back in the 70s and you know, 80s or 60s, whatever, you came out right. And that was sufficient. That little connection with the masjid was good enough for you. Your wife came out right, you came out right, and you thought, well, guess what? For my kids, one hour a day, one hour a week with the masjid or people of the masjid, probably is enough because it was enough for me. It should be enough for my kids. But we don't realize it's like you're coming from the tropics and you're, you're coming to Chicago and living, right? And you're like, oh, well, in the tropics, we don't, we, I never remember having a jacket, right? I never remember having a winter jacket, gloves, mittens, uh, earmuffs. What is this? I never owned that. So I guess in Chicago, you really don't need that either. Well, you're going to be in for a very rude awakening, right? When you have minus 3, minus 10, minus 15, like, no, 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 no. By my, what I was growing up from was very different than what, what, I, what I have over here. It's a, my children are, and we're living in a very different era. You cannot compare the weather of where you grew up to what the weather we have here. Well, similarly, the environment of deen, the attacks of deen, and the, uh, the closer we get to the Dajjali era, the, uh, the number of forces that are arriving on this earth to prepare, of his, to prepare for His coming are increasing. So that's why the attacks on our children and our youth are just skyrocketing. Every year brings more. And as moms and dads who grew up 50 years ago, 40 years ago, this is all news to us. So what worked for you is not going to work for this. The basic level of protection that you took on for when you were growing up, what your mom and dad gave you, is not sufficient for this generation. We have to have paranoia, continuous concern and worry. From what direction is he going to attack? And this is what Nabi ﷺ mentioned. Who, when Dajjal comes, his quickest, his, one of the first yani, followers from amongst his followers will be who? Women and children. Women and children. And there will be men who have some aql and basira and iman. They will be grabbing their women and their children by their waist. Holding them. No, stay at home. Stay at home for Allah's sake. Don't step out and go see. No, no, no. We just got to go check it out. They will be begging to just go check it out. And when Nabi Sallallahu said, Al-qa'idu fi khayru min al-qa'im. Okay? That the one who's sitting in the days of fitna, it will be better than the one who's standing. And the one who is lying down has been better than the one who's sitting. Meaning that as if you whoever peeks into it will fall into it. Whoever simply peeks into it will fall into it. That's how attractive it will be.
That is how attractive it will be that whoever simply tries to get a quick glance, there's no such thing as a quick glance. You look towards it, you'll get sucked into it. And so children and our sisters might be very attracted to certain aspects of, of, of you know, visual aspects of things. And they may, they may not have been trained by their men or their effort was not made on their iman. And, and, and that's a, another very uh, a, a tough reality, very sad reality. We have the boys here, all these young men sitting here. What is the condition of our sisters at home? Are they at your level, <coughs> frankly speaking? How many of them are coming to masjid programs? How many of them have female scholars that they're connected with? How many of them attend a weekly halaqa? You have team fajr, you have Tuesday night tafsir, you've got the Thursday night salawat program, you've got your retreats. Of course it's open to men and women, both. But how many of our women, do we, for some odd reason, the fathers and the brothers, everyone thinks that, oh, women are naturally protected from all fitna. That they don't need any tarbiyah. They will naturally come out right. They will naturally, they're, they're, they have haya naturally, and they're so pious naturally, that they don't need to be taken care of, they don't need to be nurtured. There's nothing further than the truth from that. There are very delicate human beings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us. They're a great amana from Allah, our daughters. But there needs to be so much more effort I might be saying something which some may not like, but this is something I've learned from my teachers who have given me advice on the importance of protecting our women, our daughters. And said, you know, whatever effort you're making on your sons, great, but you have to make more effort on your daughters. Because this is where shaitan knows to get in. Easy way in. He will get, he will, he's after the men, of course he's after the men. But he knows to get to the men, you go through the women. You, 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 bring the, you bring the wife down, the husband will automatically go down. How, long, how far he's gonna go up? Right, you get the daughter, the daughter is to the way to the heart, father's heart. Right, you mess her up, subhanAllah, what is a father can't say no to his daughter. This is the tartib. You get through the men via the women. And so shaitan, iblis, and dajjal all know that this is an easy way to get in. So what effort is our community doing? And what effort are we in the, as fathers and mothers who are listening here? As older brothers, what are you doing for your sisters? Right? We have so many programs for the boys. Not to say we don't have for the girls, but I don't see the participation from the girls in many times in those programs. There are definitely many girls participating. That's, I'm not speaking about that. But I'm talking about the sisters and the girls of those who are regular in the masjid. What is the condition of those girls whose fathers are regular in Fajr Salah? Right? Those boys who's, who are memorizing Quran. What is the condition of their sisters? It's something to think about. And it's, we cannot just separate these two aspects to say, no, girls are, are nothing to worry about. We must make extra effort on, on the preservation and protection. So many of these cases of children leaving the deen are both in boys and in girls, is what I'm trying to say. Don't think that, oh, it's a boy is the one who's going to become rebellious. No, it's not the case like that. There are too many cases in which the father, that's why he's extra shocked. He's like, if my son did this to me, uh, I would be sad, hurt, shocked. But the fact that this is my princess doing it is what is... More shocking. So why did I say all of this? Because what is the antidote? The antidote is not your uh, medicine cabinet. Your antidote is Suratul Kahf. So th this is what we should do. Every single day, Allah forbid, may Allah protect you and I from having such type of fitna in our homes or in the, on behalf of our children. But if any of you know anyone who's going through this, one basic step I will say is, recite Suratul Kahf every single day and blow it on water. Like we recite Ayatul Kursi in Falak and Nas. Blow in the water and make sure this water is, everyone drinks it, including that individual who is going through this type of um, doubt or this type of issue where they are being, <clears throat> you know, being pushed away from the deen, pushed away from the parents. And in all situations, we need to ensure that our children stay at home. Whatever you can. Even if it is absolutely horrible terms, they're, they're disregarding the deen. 
Because there is at least some level of protection when they're at home. You, at least you can give them this water that I'm speaking about. You read Surah Al-Kahf and you sit and, and blow it on water and you give it to them a drink. If they step outside of the house or they're living elsewhere, what control do you have on their environment? Zero. So no matter how angry you as a parent may be, what I've heard from ulama is that in no situation should we in this day and age pushing the kids out of the house to say that, done, you've really crossed the line. Because really outside is what? Hellfire. They step out of the house, they're going straight to Jahannam. If you keep them at home, there's still some chance of if not survival today, survival tomorrow. Something or another happens. So please use this antidote, what I just shared with you, of reciting Surah Al-Kahf and blowing it on water and giving them to drink every single day. And ourselves reciting with the niyyah of protection. In this story of Musa and Khadr, we see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives an example of a fish. Not an example, but rather mentions that they had a fish inside this basket. Right? And that the fish uh, jumped out that was uh, barbecued grilled fish and according to some narrations, half eaten, had come. So why fish out of all things? And this is some, some of the points that our Ustad Hazrat Mufti Al-Haqsab mentions that why the sim- uh, you know, fish? So he says, this example is the example, the, this, this, the, uh, the story of Musa and Khadr is a story of a talib al-ilm, is a student of knowledge going on a journey of seeking knowledge. And so he says that there's a lot of similarities between a fish and a student of knowledge. Between a fish and a student of knowledge. And so he says, for example, Allah Azza wa Jal says, وَجَعَلْنَا مِنَ الْمَاءِ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ From water we have created every living thing. So just like uh, water is a source of life for this fish, similarly knowledge is the source of life for every student. And for that matter, all of us, we're all students. If you're sitting here right now listening, you're a student. Right? You're a student. So ilm is the source of life for us. Without ilm, we're gonna be hollow vessels. We're gonna be nothing. Through knowledge is where we get our life. They were, um, I told you, they were searching for a meeting place of two seas. Majma al-Bahrain. This is also symbolic. I mentioned this last week, but I'm repeating it. That this was the Bahrain, the two oceans. One is the ocean of the knowledge of the exterior. And one is the knowledge of the interior. One is the knowledge of Musa, and one is the knowledge of Khadr. And this, this o- o- meeting of two oceans is the meeting of two knowledges, two oceans of knowledge. And then in the water, a fish is happy. And he says, similarly, a student is content with a true student of knowledge. What does he look for? He looks for his kutub. He looks for his sources of knowledge. As long as he is with his books, as long as with his teachers, he's content. The ocean is never ending. Similarly, the path of pursuing ilm never ends. It's mentioned in a hadith that Musa and Khadr were on the boat. We're gonna come to that story, right? The first story. Musa and Khadr were on the boat. And as they were sitting there, a bird flew by, perched on the side of the boat, and had a beakful, small bird with a small beak of water in it. It took a sip out of the ocean and drank from it. Musa, Khadr looked at Musa. He said, oh Musa, listen. You saw this bird? You saw how much water he put into his beak from the ocean. He says that, that ratio between the water in its beak compared to the ocean of the seas, that ratio is still greater when compared to the knowledge that you have and I have compared with the knowledge of Allah. Okay? All the knowledge that you have, you're the most knowledgeable person right now. Nabi Kalimullah, you've spoken to Allah, you have the most knowledge of, of the ilm al-dhahir, the apparent knowledge. You have received Torah. And my knowledge, put together in front of Allah's knowledge, 
is like the water in the beak compared to the massive vastness of the oceans. So this is what you see here, is that just like the ocean is never ending, the knowledge truly never ends. A fish doesn't sleep much. If it does, it does so with its eyes open. A student of knowledge similarly is supposed to sleep minimal. He or she devotes as much as time as he or she can studying. And when they do go to sleep, they're going to be thinking about the ummah. And this is exactly what one of the ulama has said. He said, he said I use, I, I, uh, I, I, uh, I read and read and read with my tongue as long as I can. After I get tired of moving my tongue, I start using my eyes to read. And after my eyes get tired and I close my eyes, فكري, I start using my intellectual power and my mind to start thinking and processing the knowledge I studied for the benefit of the ummah. So there's not a moment of relaxation. There's continuous 24-7 effort. You are reading with your tongue when you can, listening to durus when you can. And when you're too tired, you're just simply reading with your eyes. And when you're too tired, you need to close your eyes. You don't just close your eyes and listen to some other things. Instead, you're thinking about what you read and how you can develop solutions uh, for people. I remember when I had visited uh, East Coast long ago, I had a friend studying at MIT and he took me for a tour and I went to see, it at, late at night, we were passing through one of the many libraries there. Seeing that scene of students just, you know, just late at night, cannot differentiate, can have no idea whether it's night or day outside. Many of these libraries are underground. And, the, and it's absolutely dark. I mean, they have no, no sunlight. You don't know if it's day or night. And then to see some of them literally just sleeping on their books. He told me himself, he said most of the days he would just sleep in the library. Right, just on his books most of the days. And what is it? It's great. It's the pursuit of knowledge. It's awesome. But the ajr is, what's the ajr for there? Just want to get a patent or get a, get a, a, you know, a higher paying job or make a breakthrough research in somewhere. I mean, that's it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, مَبْلَغُهُمْ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ That is the extent of their knowledge. They can't even think beyond that. Their end, what is the highest thing? A Nobel Peace Prize. What is the highest thing? A new invention. What's the highest thing? An amazing company that gets a great, um, you know, uh, what you call, uh, inve- in, in, a great number of investors in it. That's it. What goes beyond that? For us, ilm is something very sacred. Ilm is something that is ibadah. It's act of worship. It is a way to understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's greatness. So the desire you and I have for ilm should be obviously much more. We see that when a fish moves, Mufti Rada al-Aqsa mentions, when a, move, when a fish moves around, it splashes. If it is staying in water, it at least bubbles. Similarly, when a student of knowledge goes to a place, he makes a difference. He will make splashes. And if he can't do that, he will make at least bubbles. It is not possible that a student, a real student of knowledge, can go to a masjid for one year, two years without having some effect. Then there's something really wrong in the knowledge of that individual. If you're a student of knowledge, then there, you need to be at least uh, starting up some halaqa there. Or if not, you give one piece of good advice to one person sitting next to you. person next to you didn't hold his hands properly. The person next to you, he missed the third rak- fourth rakah. And uh, he does, he's mixing up the number of rakahs he does. Many brothers, for example, I'm just saying, many people, they come and they join the imam. When the imam has already said salam, assalamu alaikum warahmatullah, and they join him. Done, you've missed the salah. But many people, they go join him in qa'dah. They, they go join him in tashahud in qa'dah. And then they stand up and carry on. No, you can't do that. If you missed uh, the salam, you were not able to even get a second of tashahud, then you cannot hatch, uh, latch on to the imam right now. So if you go and sit down, and, he says, and you, before you sat down, he said salam, guess what's going to happen? You have to say salam, both sides, your salah is over. 
you need to stand up and say, now new takbiratul ihram, new intention, not as behind the imam, but as a separate person performing salah. And you say, Allahu Akbar, and you start your salah. Okay, there might be someone next to you who's doing that. As a student of knowledge, how can you just ignore that? That's what I'm trying to say. As a student of knowledge, when you see something somewhere that is being done incorrectly, in the wudu area, someone not washing their feet properly, with utmost wisdom and love, we have to explain. So this is beautiful point what he says. Just like a fish will make bubbles or will, will splash around, similarly a student of knowledge wherever he goes needs to make an effect and a change. When a, a, a fish meat is soft, yet has pokey bones. So when preparing the fish, first you clean it, add some spices and it tastes good. Similarly as a student of knowledge, he or she will taste good when they do the tazkiyah of themselves. What is a fish? A raw fish is nothing. You ha- the raw fish has to be put on a stove, in an oven, on fire. And after that it has to be spiced up. All then only tastes good. So a raw student of knowledge that has not been cooked properly and has not been spiced properly, it will taste bitter. It won't taste nice. Knowledge will taste very nice from such people who have had their tarbiyah and tazkiyah done who have had to go through sacrifice and mujahada under the guidance of a mentor or a shaykh. Right? The, the, who is that? The cook on the fish. Who's cooking the fish? He's the mentor. He's the shaykh. Who's, who's taking care of it. Alright? A, a fish always remains surrounded by water. Similarly, a, a student of knowledge must always be surrounded by books and, 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 and his uh, teachers and so forth. So these are some of these, subhanAllah, interesting things as the Mufti Sahab mentions on the uh, comparisons between a fish and a talib ilm of, uh, of knowledge. Um, moving forward, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that they, uh, uh, they, these two individuals, when they um, decided to board the, uh, be, decided, decided to carry on, what happened? Uh, they made a shart, they made a condition. Right? I think this is where you stop. Last time, yeah. He says, Musa salam told him, May I follow you? Remember I told you that he did not just say, I've been sent by Allah, I have to follow you. He said, can you please allow me to follow you? He said, now I want to follow you on the condition that you teach me some, something beneficial. Alright, guidance. Rushda. So what is this rushda? Rushda is the ability, husnu tasarrufi fil ashya to properly manipulate or to properly handle your affairs is rushta. Right? That's why, um, you know, we've been told that when you're taking care of an orphan, don't give him his money until until you sense that there's some maturity and ability to handle his affairs, then you give the orphan the money. What word has been used? Rushta. Same thing. Rushd is the ability to handle your affairs properly. So Musa salam, look at his humility and humbleness. He's saying, Oh Khadir, I want you to please grant me some of the knowledge that Allah has given you. Look at that. And to mimma ulimta. Ulimta is the passive form, yeah? Mafi'il majhul. You've been taught. You've been taught. Because everything that Musa has and everything that Khadir has, it's all from Allah. And Allah tells all of us. From Nabi Adam till the last person who dies, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, in the story of the soul. They're asking about the soul, the essence of the soul. Tell them the soul is from the command of my Lord. 
That's it. I'm, that's all the answer I'm going to give you. We waited for so long. You said you're going to get some knowledge. Well, guess what? This is the knowledge. This is the answer. I got it. <clears throat> I can't give you anything beyond that. And then the remainder of the ayah, All of you have not been given knowledge except for a small amount. What does that tell us? Number one, none of us have gotten knowledge ourselves. It's all been given to us. We were inspired to enroll in a madrasa. We were inspired to attend a dars of tafsir. We were, uh, we were enabled to take notes. We were enabled to understand and comprehend what was being shared. None of it is our own. There's nothing to be uh, proud and, and, uh, and, 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 and arrogant about. Instead, whatever knowledge we have has been given to us by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Utitum fi'al majhul is passive form, has been given to you. Number two, qalila. All of it that you have been given is nothing. This is called nakira tahta nafi. Qalila is nakira. Uh, and it is, you know, uh, uh, coming after a nafi. What's nafi? Muama. So whenever you have a nakira after nafi, it gives you the meaning yufidul umum. It gives you the benefit of generality. Meaning basically, sorry for this nahu here, but basically the, what I'm trying to say is, the way the word is, the way the words are placed in this verse is telling us that in reality, you, re you all really don't have nothing at all, nothing at all, except for a little bit. So the emphasis on nothing at all, that everything, all the Harvard, multiple libraries at Harvard and MIT, the six floors below the ground and six floors above the ground, and the multiple, all of that, Library of Congress, what is that all? Qalila. It's nothing but little compared to the knowledge of Allah. So how dare we come and say, oh, I don't understand if God exists, I'm not sure about Him, right? I don't see him. I don't have this issue with God. But all the Library of Congress, you memorized it, which is not possible. Everything, all of this put together, you'll still not be able to understand Allah. All right? Um, and it was, it was interesting. I had read, I think I mentioned this here before. I read an article, uh, like some scientists were worried about where artificial intelligence is going. And th this is an article from like five, six years ago, that they were afraid a time will come that this artificial intelligence will become so smart that it will, it will now start playing the role of God itself. And will come up with its own religion and will say, you know what? Uh, based on all the knowledge, because knowledge is power, I have knowledge. By all the knowledge in the world you have, even with this $10 billion telescope that's just been sent up, it's still qalila. That's what we need to understand. So the artificial intelligence, what they're, these scientists are afraid is that once it's gonna start speaking and talking, in, it's sooner, sooner or later, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have the ability to have more knowledge than any single human being in the world. Because it will have, be able to run uh, this metadata through so many layers of, uh, of, you know, uh, of, 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 of research and checking from various ways and angles and, and, um, and algorithms, all these things that it will produce such answers to questions that no person will ever have. No one person, or even two people, or three people, or four people together can say, we have an answer. But that artificial intelligence will give it to you. So what was interesting is that how they, these scientists were thinking, uh, you know, a glimmer of, of haq, a small amount of nur came into them, where they started saying that we're afraid that this artificial intelligence may just come up with its own God and its own religion, and its own way of life that it will dictate human beings to follow. And I just thought, subhanAllah, this is exactly what we're talking about Dajjal. This is how it will lead up, lead up to that same thing. Because of the over-dependency on what? Knowledge. Thinking that I have something. And what the Qur'an is saying, you have nothing. So let's look at what Musa is saying. He's telling Khidr, 
I'm coming to learn from you. I know I'm a great prophet. I've received Torah and everything. I spoke to Allah directly. But still, I'm coming to follow you to gain, gain some guidance. Mimma from what you have been given. And Nabi والسلام, Allah has been told, Allah told Nabi والسلام, to say, وَقُلْ And say, Rabbi zidni ilma. Oh Allah, increase me in my knowledge. Nabi والسلام, most knowledgeable person. But he's being told, and of course we are being told, that there's, you can never be content by having enough. You need to keep on asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala more. That's why a poet, he says, He says, the more I learned, the more I became convinced of my ignorance. The more I learned, the more I became, what? Convinced of my ignorance. And then another poet, he, poet, he says, he said, my nafs started telling me, I know a lot. My nafs, where is this, all these youth today becoming misled? Because of this, because of the arrogance over their little teeny tiny bit of knowledge that they've gotten, and they say they're enlightened. They say, oh, mom and dad, y'all don't know anything. And you know, I went to college, I went to university, I took this philosophy class, I took that, I know more than you, please. You don't have this. It's all, this is exactly what led to Iblis's demise. This arrogance over, I'm something, I know something. Adam doesn't know all of this. Adam doesn't have this knowledge. Khalas, it was the nail in the coffin for Iblis. And that is the nail in the coffin for the youth today, who seem to think that they have more knowledge than everyone else. That's the arrogance. That's why you have to pound this into our kids. Humility and humbleness. Make sure they don't become arrogant. Make sure they don't start thinking of themselves to be something. Really, it's so important. I don't care what medicine, what law, what university, what accounting, what university gets into. You gotta keep on bringing them back to the ground. To say, bhai, listen. Everything you have, does it, you know, it, it, shaitan has more than you. No matter if you get 10 PhDs, you will never match the ilm of shaitan or iblis or dajjal. How does that make you? How does knowledge, pure knowledge make you a better person? It doesn't. It doesn't. Unless it's refined through the nur of iman, it's not going to actually mislead you. So he says, when the nafs said, I know a lot, قلت, I told him, oh nafs, you are misled. All this knowledge that you are excited about is actually very little. Very little that, you've been, that you have been able to pull out from the larger ocean of knowledge. Then he gives an example to his nafs. He said, if a, if a room is filled with glasses and cups filled from the ocean, so you have a room filled with cups. All of the cups are water bottles. Water bottles from the lake. A room filled with water bottles from the lake water. Michigan water, Lake Michigan water. And then someone walks in and he starts, SubhanAllah, look at how many glasses and bottles of water. This must be greater than the ocean. He said, what a fool who would think like that. That all of these glass came from where? The bottle of water came from where? It came from there. This is one billionth of what's out there. So he's telling his nafs the same thing. And so this is what we learned from this story, that never become content with what we have. Einstein said this, this same thing. He said, look at the light when you place, when, when, you, when you, for example, flash a light on a wall, in a dark room, and you see, uh, you, you, uh, the, the, as you, if you go close to the wall, the circle of light is going to be small. And you, you, know, you back away from the wall, 5 feet, 10 feet, 15 feet, the circle... It gets greater and greater. So now you take this example and apply it, and he says that the greater the, uh, the, greater the circle of knowledge, the greater the area of darkness. The more knowledge you have, the greater area around it of darkness. Meaning, the more knowledge you have, the more realization you will have of your ignorance. What an amazing way to understand this whole concept. 
right? This, that, he, that he shared with us, that seriously, the more ilm we gain, the more humility and humbleness it should create within us because we start realizing how much, how much we don't know. You know, we, the first year students in the Tadweer program, I would say that this is one of the objectives. Oh, you should learn 60-70% of the Qur'an translation. You should know how to give a khutbah. You should know how to lead a janan salah, wash a body. You should know how to perform a nikah. You should know how to defend your deen, answer basic questions about, about aqidah, fiqh, and you know, all these objectives. One of the objectives I would mention before, and it's just true, which is true now as well, is that the, one of the objectives of the Tadweer intensive or the one-year program is to walk out realizing how little you know. Right? That, because right now what the problem is, we're in Jahlul Murakkab. We don't know anything and we don't realize that we don't know anything. So we think we know everything and that is the fatal element. When a person is being misled, thinking he's driving in the right direction when he's going against traffic. It's a matter of seconds before he will end up in a dead end, you know, head-on collision. Yeah? So this is the issue today, is that youth and adults, both, all of us need to hum humble ourselves. When you study, and I've told you before, come walk into the library here. Come sit in a 6th year, 7th year, 5th year, 4th year, 3rd year, any of these classes. And inshallah, that's gonna be the one benefit you'll get. No matter what type of position you have outside. At least, by coming and sitting into the classes of ilm, you will realize, wow, there's an entire universe that I'm absolutely unaware of. Right? Because when we talk about IT, I'm not into IT, maybe many of you are not into IT, but you know kind of what you have to study in that. I'm not into medicine, you're not into medicine, but you know what people who are studying medicine kind of know what they're doing. I'm not into business, you're not into business, you might know someone who says, I'm doing an MBA, kind of get an idea what he's doing. But when it comes to ilm, unfortunately, most of us have absolutely not even the slightest idea what the alim course comprises of. What does it include? What is balagha? What is ilm al-rijal? What is ilm al-asanid? What is fiqh? What is usul al-fiqh? What in the world are these even sciences? Right, so when we don't know that, then we have no appreciation of it. And we don't have appreciation of the people who study that. How hurtful it is when someone says, oh, what have you studied? Oh, I studied three years of Qur'an memorization. They studied three years of Qira'at. And then I memorized, I did the Alam program for seven years, did two years of postgraduate studies. Oh, okay. Oh, so, we're, so what's your education? That's the next question. What's your education? What did he just say right now? Did you hear that? According to him, that's all zero. None of that counts. So that's why there's this huge emphasis within our community. That oh subhanAllah, beta, you have to go, you have to go get your undergrad degree from somewhere. Even if he gets a 2.0 in art, you know, and that's what his degree is. They're so happy, they're proudly displayed in their house that he's got some random, you know, undergrad from some random place, online MBA, you know, from University of Phoenix or Trump University or whatever. That's great. That's something we really uh, think. But if someone goes and said, I studied the weekend tafim program or studied the tanwir program, where's the value from that? And that hurts us, right? That's reality what I'm telling you. When the overemphasis on these type of things and the less emphasis on studying the deen, you're going to have a very corrupt society. You're going to have people who have no, no scruples, no knowledge of deen. They won't be able to apply anything in their daily life. We have to change that. We really have to say, yeah, university, everything, mashallah, good. First, you got to come study the deen. What point of it? I don't want you to go to university not knowing how to, how to, how, how, the names of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ. Not knowing why you're a Muslim. What's the point of that? How, how does that make you a... How am I going to be a, a proud father of someone who doesn't know how to answer the three questions of the grave? If you don't know how to answer the three questions of the grave, how are you going to make me proud? You're not going to make me proud. Because we're all going to suffer. Man Rabbuk madinuk wa rajul. Who is your Lord? What is your religion? What do you have to say about this Prophet Muhammad sallallahu These three questions, that's what we got to make effort about. And that's definitely not what they're teaching at university. That's not what answers these three questions. That you're going to have to learn in the madrasa. That's what you have to come and learn in the masjid. That's what you have to come and learn uh, uh, you know, from the scholars and the ulama. So coming and getting a taste of it, I think is something I encourage all of you to do. 
Musa salam was told by Khadr, you're not gonna be patient, you're not gonna be able to handle it. And then he gives an explanation why he can't be able to handle it. He says, how can you be, be patient with an experience that you cannot comprehend? So Khadr, look at the respect he had for Musa salam. He's being honest, brutally honest, that you won't be able to handle. And then, I don't blame you for not being able to be handle, handling with me, it's because this is of a different type. You have been programmed in a certain manner to see anything that goes against the Torah is wrong. Anything that goes against the external Sharia is wrong. You're gonna call it haram. But there are certain exceptions to that which you're unaware of. And I'm part of those exceptions. Alright? And so this, I'm gonna be doing things which according to your knowledge, based on what background you're coming from, is unacceptable. And for me, it is acceptable. So he says, no, inshallah. I will, be, I will be patient and I will not disobey any command of yours. I talked about this last week, that when you, form, when you get into a relationship with an ustad and a teacher, there needs to be understanding of rules, there needs to be some etiquette you have to follow, the teacher may lay down the rules and the student must be willing to accept those rules. So he, and, and, if, and if you don't follow those rules, you can be asked to leave. You can't say, well, how can you be depriving me of knowledge? You can't say that. Right? You can't say that, because these are the rules we agreed upon. Musa salam, why did he agree upon this? Because he was said, I'm God sent. Allah sent me here. So why would I, why would I see anything that's against your sharia over here? Everything that Khidr is gonna do is according to sharia. So why will I stop him? Why will I ask him questions? I'll just remain quiet. He never imagined what's gonna happen. Because Allah sent him there, he thought everything's gonna be according to the sharia. Right? According to what things um, are acceptable. So that's why he agreed to that. Um, so then he said, okay, make sure that you do not um, uh, ask any questions. So they proceeded. And at last when they embarked the ship, he scuttled it. Okay, so now, as soon as, what, what was the story? He went and boarded a ship, he knew the owners of the ship. He boarded it, and on their, as they are traveling, they're talking, the bird came, the of the bird with the water and the beak, and other things are happening, chit-chatting, what happens all of a sudden? He comes in, Musa uh, uh, takes a little axe, takes a little hammer, and starts chiseling away. <laughs> He's like, what are you doing? He said, I'm removing a plank. Why are you removing a plank? Don't ask. Right? Simple. That's the whole thing. Don't ask. So, you know, this reminds me of our, the joke I shared here before. For those who didn't hear it the first time. They say, you know, because when we went to Madrasa, even myself, I used to ask so many questions. Everybody, what, but why is this? But why is that? And the teacher would say, listen, don't ask. Just be patient. You know, you're coming the first day, you're asking stuff of the 10th day and the 20th day. You would, my, one Ustad Mohan Chokhsi would say, No mene se pele janne ki koshish mat karo. That's what he would say. He said, don't try to be born before 9 months, right? Just wait. Let, the full, let it be a full-term baby. You're always trying to jump the gun and ask things. So, <laughs> I didn't really know how bad it was to ask. One day until I pushed the buttons, I guess so, I asked Mohan Sulaiman Mullah, Something in Quran Tarjuman, you know, my second year there. Boy, he was in a bad mood that day, but mashallah, I benefited a lot because for the next 20 minutes, he mentioned every single hadith and Quranic verse against asking questions. I never knew this many things except were out there. And it was a bayan in itself, 20 minutes, right? Hammering me about why you're asking questions. And subhanAllah, he's just, alhamdulillah, like an encyclopedic knowledge Allah has blessed him, blessed him with and an amazing photographic memory. Shaykh Suleiman Mullah, if you haven't heard him. Listen to him online, mashallah. So he taught me Quran, tafsir, a portion of it. And so one of those days when I asked him something, he got upset. And for the next 20 minutes, we, weren't, we forgot what we were doing. He just went on a whole bayan on why you shouldn't ask questions. So one, one person, you know, uh, they say that uh, 
the, you know, learning grammar, the Ustad taught him, he was teaching him the verb and the doer and the doey. He said he wrote Daraba Zaydun Amran, very famous example. Zayd hit Amr. Zaydun's got the Dhammatain because it's the doer. Amran is the doey, it's, so it's, it's got the Fathatain on it. So he wrote that on the, on the, on the board, Daraba Zaydun Amran. Okay, boys, you guys understand? So then one of the students immediately raised his hand, what happened? He said, why did Zayd, Amr, why did Zayd hit Amr? He said, why he didn't hit Amr, man? This is an example. So you mean you're, you're lying? No, but this is an example. He said, okay, if the knowledge, the, the first day, you are bringing lies to the classroom, then I'm done with this knowledge. And he walked out, right? So sometimes it's true. People, yani, they don't understand. And they ask questions that are before their time and it causes problems. So here you go, he asked them, he told them, don't, 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 I just told you, don't ask. But what did Musa do? He didn't, he says, are you, are you tearing this boat apart to drown its people? The owners and those, and we're gonna get out, but soon the water is gonna seep him. And then he made a fatwa. Very truly, you've done a grievous thing. Give a fatwa. You've done a very bad thing, grievous thing. Musa salam, we can't blame him because his job is to give fatwa. His job is to say it's halal and haram. Based on the rules of Sharia and Torah, you cannot uh, break someone else's property. You can't do that. You're renting something, you have to take, or you're, you're using it to cross over this uh, other side of the river. You cannot cause uh, you know, financial harm to this individual. So, from his perspective, he was right. Um, but Musa al-Khadr said, okay. He said to Moses, did I not say to you, indeed, you can never be patient enough to bear with me? My job is very difficult. You're gonna, he's going to be doing things that you will not understand. And I told you, and exactly what I told you is what has happened. He said, please do not hold me accountable for what I have forgotten. I made a mistake. I genuinely forgot that I was supposed to keep my mouth shut. I forgot. Please forgive me. Nor burden me with further difficulty in my endeavor to learn from you. It's already hard enough. I've been through so much difficulty to be here. I'm seriously, I want to study from you. I want to learn from you. So kindly overlook my faults of forgetfulness. Um, you know, one of the, the points that Mufti Allah mentions is that sometimes we will see you, you cannot be quick to pass judgments on why, when, when pe people do things which apparently don't seem right. If we are a student or if we are an ami benefiting from someone or we hear about a scholar who does something on his own personal life, not that he's giving fatwa about it, his personal life is something. Then our dictate of that should be, if he's telling you to do something wrong, that's a different thing. We're not saying follow that. Personally, you hear about someone does something, then we should have husnudhan and have good uh, thoughts about that individual, that probably whatever the reason, what, what, it's not what, it me, what meets the eye. There must be another story to this. There must be another reality to this. There must be another perspective to this, that I'm not fully aware of it. You have to understand it through the context. I don't know the context. You come and say, do you believe this? Someone did this. What are you gonna say about this person? If someone comes to you and say, this knowledgeable person, or this famous person, or this someone did this, what do you say about that? Your answer should be, I say nothing about it. First of all, it's none of my business. And number two, uh, if it was my business too, I cannot be asked to give my opinion 
or put in my uh, mind and my two cents as something that you have taken out of context. You're just sharing me one thing. But no, this doesn't need a context. No, you don't know. We Allahi, there's so many stories right now that come to mind, but we're not gonna share them here. But there's so many stories that maybe you have in your own life that you did something that someone rushed to judge you when in reality it was nothing like what people were thinking about. So if you don't want people to judge you, my beloved brothers and sisters, let's not judge anyone else. Right? And that's why the Quran says, Stay away from many types of suspicion. Indeed, some sorts of suspicion are a source of sin. Do not point fingers at people's intentions. Don't pass judgments on why people are doing certain things. We don't know why people are doing certain things. You don't know the specific halat of someone. You see what I'm trying to say? I remember, uh, one, uh, it was mentioned about a scholar, that he would get up from rukur, and he would not stand up properly from rukur. He would go into sajda. His salah was slow, but he would not stand up from ruku properly. So, hey, yaar, come on, man. We teach our six-year-olds that by when you stand up for ruku, we stand up clear, straight, back has to be solid, you know, flat, straight up. And, uh, 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 you know, how is this Mulana Sahib? What kind of salah he's praying? Like this, can't believe he doesn't know this basic thing. Someone's mentioned that. Then they said by, they, you know, instead of passing judgments, let's go find out from his family. So he had a problem. He had a problem such that if he were to stand up from, sajda, from ruku to sajda, his wudu would break. Right? He would pass urine. So that was his majburi, that was his excuse, that was his udhr, and because of which he would not stand up properly, straight. Right? Now who's gonna know this? You're gonna expect him to go tell everyone this? But my point is, you may see certain things in an individual that he's doing, you should always try to come up with excuses before we start um, you know, passing judgments upon that. Then they both started walking again. So they proceeded. At last when they met a boy, he killed him. Musa said, Have you killed an innocent soul without cause of retribution for another soul? Very truly you have done a horrific thing. So now the way Musa is reprimanding or issuing a fatwa to Khadr, it's increasing in harshness. Because now this is too much now. You breaking the uh, a boat was not nowhere near as bad as what happened over here. You have you have um, killed another soul. So I mean, basic. Before we get to all the answers that he's gonna give, I'm just gonna give you an example. Killing of a soul and how it's happening. It's like if you're walking around with malakul maut. You walk in. You, you want to go for you want to go for a coffee. Malakul maut. Take it malakul maut. On the way, he kills like eight people on the way to coffee. Like what? But that's what he does. His job is to take souls out. That's what his job is. Right? If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him a human form, which angels do come sometimes, like, like Jibreel used to come in the form of Dahya Kalbi radiallahu anhu. And like that. If let's just say Azrael, Malakul Mawt, were to come in the form of a human being, and he just kills people, what are you going to say? Oh, that this is haram? You see what I'm trying to say? He is reporting to Allah, you're reporting to Allah, but his sharia, it doesn't apply to him in that sense. That's what his job is. Right? And it's a whole different layer of, 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 of things. Taqween, that's what we call taqween. So Khadr, that I'm not sure if I told you why he's called Khadr. Did we talk about that last week? Alright, Akhdar means what? Green. So the, the Khadr, the grass, wherever he would sit, the spot would turn, immediately turn green. Right? And wherever he would sit, and no matter what the nature of the land was. And that's why his name was given Khadr. So he was, like we said, he definitely had to be a prophet. We talked about that last week. He had to be a prophet. Can't be a non-prophet. Why did we say that? You remember? Can't be a wali. Why? 
Huh? You have to receive revelation to be able to do things that are completely contrary to the Sharia. You cannot say, I'm going to kill this ch child because I was inspired to do so. That sounds like someone who's listened to some of the horrible music and says the devil told him to do stuff, you know? That's, that's what that is. But you cannot be saying you're inspired by Allah to kill someone or to break this or to, to break the ahkam of Sharia. Inspiration, kashf, ilham, those type of words, you can't use that. And those happen to awliya, those happen to friends of Allah. But a friend of Allah cannot say he was inspired to break the command of Allah. Only this has to happen directly with wahi, revelation. And who receives wahi? Prophets too. So he was a prophet of Allah. But he was receiving a different type of wahi that was of a different kind. And so uh, the other opinion is that he was an angel. Did we, did we talk about that? Khadr is possibly an angel. Some have said that. Um, because there are many books that mention that he's still alive. There are many books that mention incidents and stories of him being still alive. Um, and, and the fact that Nabi Ali Salam said, uh, once he gathered the Sahaba and he said, who, uh, one night after Isha, he said, whoever is alive right now, a hundred years from now will be dead. Whoever is alive, there's not going to be a single person who is alive right now. A hundred years from now will, will not be alive. So that's a hadith Nabi Salam mentioned. So some people based on that, they say, well, uh, Khadr has to be dead. So the ulama who are of the opinion that he might be of an angel, say that, you know, first of all, this is not replying to angels. This is not applying to angels. Uh, and number two, if he is even a, a specific non-angel human being, he's a very special human being who has a very special way of doing things. And he can easily be excluded from this just like Nabi Isa is excluded from this. Nabi Isa is alive. He didn't die. He, Allah just lifted him. Allah lifted him up and Allah will send him back. So that hadith of no one living after 100 years from now, Isa is excluded from there and Khadr can be excluded from there either by still keeping him as a prophet but with a very interesting life or by saying that he is an angel. Allah knows best the reality of it. Actually, I will share with you now since we did speak about it here. Um, is that there is mentioned in the books of hadith that at the time of, uh, of the death of Rasulullah wasallam. Uh, that it's mentioned in the books of hadith that at the time of the death of, of Rasulullah Sayyidina Anas radiallahu anhu mentions he says that a person came with a black and white beard and he tearing through the crowd of people he reached inside where Rasulullah was laying and he started weeping then turning to the noble companions he said the following words inna fillahi aza'un min kulli musibah indeed in Allah there is endurance against all distress Indeed, with Allah, you, you will be able to endure any type of distress if you run towards Allah. min kulli And with Allah, you will find recompense of everything taken away. Anything you take away, you will find the recompense with where? With Allah. min kulli halik. And you will find uh, something to replace, a recompense for everything that has been taken away. Hence, to Allah alone, should you turn. And to Allah alone should you uh, desire. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He is going to be looking at you uh, with compassion. So look at Him as well. Allah is looking at you in this difficulty, so ensure you are careful and you are also focused on Allah. For indeed, deprived is he who has been deprived of the reward of enduring distress. Musibat already has happened. You're not, the, you're not suffering if you are going through difficulty. 
The real suffering will happen if you don't make sabr at this suffering. Get it? The suffering is not the fact that someone passed away in your family, or you lost your job, or you got hurt. This is not the big musibah. The real musibah is after all that happens, you still are not able to get forgiven, or you're still not able to get reward, because you did not have patience. Right? So this is what he's saying. He's consoling the sahaba, that now is the time to turn towards Allah. Look towards Allah. Allah will take care of you. Allah will take care of your needs. Right? Turn towards Allah. After having said these words, this man with the white and black beard who had tore through the crowd and came and said these words, he departed. Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Ali عنه, says he was Al-Khadr. Khadr had come and said this. Right? This is narrated by Ibn Jazri in his Hisnul Hasim. And then there is another interesting uh, riwayah. Ibn Abi Dunya mentions, he says that Ali عنه, met Khidr who told him about a dua which if anyone recites after every salah will bring him great reward, forgiveness and mercy. What is that dua? I'll read with the translation of the dua. Ya man la yushghiluhu sam'un an sam'in wa ya man la tughlituhu al-masail wa ya man la yubrimu min ilha'il mulihin adhiqni barda afwik wa halawati maghfiratik. O oh, the one whose hearing does not hamper his hearing of the other. O oh, the one whose hearing of one thing does not hamper his hearing of another. Meaning it's not like I'm speaking, like I'm speaking to you and then someone else speaks to you, you get confused. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is such that while one person is speaking, another million can speak also. Allah azza wa jalla can understand each person individually in their own language. And then he says, Oh, the one who never errs in responding to the millions of requests simultaneously. One's asking for a child, one's asking for a wife, one's asking for uh, food, one's asking for sustenance, one's asking for something else. All millions of people are asking. Imagine the Maidan of Arafah. May Allah bring those days back again when you'd have three, four million people there. So they're all asking in their own languages continuously all over the world. And Allah is able to individually listen to each one and respond to each one simultaneously. He says, And oh, the one who never becomes wary of the plaints made repeatedly by those who make them in prayer. Meaning, there are certain people who are, very, who are taught to become very persistent and consistent and insistent with their dua. And Allah never gets tired of that insistence. Allah never gets angry and bored by that insistence. By them continuously saying, Ya Allah, I want this. I want every salah, same thing. Allah Azza wa Jal doesn't get upset, does not get, become wary of that. So this is how He praises Allah. What's a dua? أَذِقْنِي بَرْدَ عَفْوِكْ وَحَلَاوَةِ مَغْفِرَتِكَ Oh Allah, have a cool taste of you. Allow me to enjoy a cool taste of your forgiveness and the sweetness of your pardon. Allow me to taste the cool taste of your forgiveness and the sweetness of your pardon. This is from Tafsir al-Qurtubi mentioned here in Ma'arif al-Qur'an. Right? So, uh, the issue about whether he is alive or passed away, whether he is a prophet or an angel, is something which we're not going to be asked about in the grave. And it's not one of the main issues of our deen or even a minor issue of the deen. It's just for the sake of knowledge I shared with you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best uh, the reality of these affairs. Um, if you have someone willing to come and help you, Alhamdulillah, don't ask are you khadr or not. Just take the help to jump your car and move on. Okay, don't ask too many questions. Okay, don't even refuse him to say, no, I didn't call AAA where you came from. Right, just take, take the help if he's changing your tire and whatever else you need to. Alhamdulillah. As there have been reports <laughs> of this sort. So, um, Musa salam said, how are you killing this innocent soul? Right, Zakiya. He got upset. Next, Qala al-Makullak, Musa, uh, Khadr told him, 
قال لم اقل لك انك لن تستطيع معي صبرا did i not say to you indeed you can never be patient enough to bear with me خلاص before he could even say anything khadr musa salam himself said i'm sorry i don't i'm not going i'm not going to give any more excuses i'm done i'll tell you what قال ان سالتك عن شيء بعدها if if after this i question you about anything else فلا تصاحبني then no longer keep me in your company صحبه Right, the suhba of the shaykh, suhba of the teacher, so important. What do you what do we learn in this story here? So much of the learning happens outside of the classroom. So much of the learning happens in journey, in a journey. You learn so many things. Right? How a teacher interacts, responds, acts with someone. These are things. That's why traveling with a scholar, with a teacher, is so huge blessing. That if we are able to do so, and so he is traveling on this. He said, okay. فَلَاتُ صَحَبَنِي Do not allow me to stay in your company if I bother you anymore. قَدْ بَلَغْتَ I'm sorry. قَدْ بَلَغْتَ مِنْ لَذِينِ عُذْرَ You have already attained enough excusing on my part. I have made already too many excuses. And um, I'm not going to give another one. So they moved on. فَانْتَلَقَ So they proceeded. حَتَّى أَتَيَا أَهْلَ قَرْيَةٍ إِسْتَطْعَمَ أَهْلَهَا At last they came upon a, the people of a town. إِسْتَطْعَمَ أَهْلَهَا They requested food from the hospitality of its people. Now look at this. They're not even asking, you know, three-star, five-star hotel. They're asking, istatama, food. We're travelers. Please give us some food. We're hungry. Because there's no restaurants. Remember I told you this before. There's no restaurants. There's no people. Used to always just invite people to their home. It was not like a normal thing that, you know, you go uh, purchase a re- a food from a restaurant. So they ask, can we please get food from your homes? Ala means the people of the town. Meaning, going door to door. Bhai, can I have something? Can we have something? We're hungry. We've been traveling for so long. And the fish is gone too. Can we have something? They refused to host them. It didn't say they refused to give them food. They refused to even accommodate them in any manner. Not even give them food, not even show them any type of hospitality. That okay, you know what, why don't you wait here, we'll bring something, or you go there tomorrow, we'll give you a place to sleep, nothing. They were extremely stingy people. They kept on moving on. They, didn't, they decided not to stay there because there's nothing to do there. فَوَجَدَ فِيهَا جِدَارًا As they were going, they found a wall. يُرِيدُ أَيَنْ That was ready to topple, topple over. يُرِيدُ Intended to topple over. We're going to translate as that. Ready to topple over. It was so weak, it was about to fall over. فَأَقَامَ Thus Khadr, he reinforced it. أَقَامَ And he set it upright. Meaning he sat down and he built the wall up. Okay, he said, MashaAllah, now Musa is already hungry and he's, putting, he's being put to work as well with Khadr. Or Khadr is working himself. So they both work together and they build this wall. And you know, some of the ulama of tafsir, I know I don't share with you tons and tons of stuff that's written here, but I just, just to give you a glimpse of what's written out there. Arada. The aspect, this is the wall intended. So now there's a whole long discussion, can a wall intend? Right? So my long discussion, can a wall intend? So some translated as we just said, was about to fall. What was it? What did we translate it as? A ready to fall, right? That was it. And that Arada translated as ready to topple over. But then others will say, no, there can be an irada. Irada means a will. Will means it's got to have some soul. It's got to have some life in it. And then talk about those, you know, the things in this world that may be apparently non-living, but they, also, but they actually have a life in it. And now I'm going to share some things with you. For example, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, This is a riwayah of Imam Ahmad in his Musnad. He says, Indeed, Muhammad Rasulullah says, Indeed, I know of a stone in Mecca. I know what? I know a stone in Mecca 
that would say salam to me even before I became a prophet. Right? The, the stone would say assalamu alaikum. Right? Because the stone knew that this man is going to become a prophet of Allah. Allah had given that amount of knowledge to that stone. And he said, I could hear it. How many stones must be giving salam to Rasulullah? Too many. But this one stone that Rasulullah could hear. Nabi Rasulullah, you know, in Madinatul Munawwara, he used to lean against a tree and used to give the khutbah. When the Sahaba decided to build a member for him, Rasulullah stepped away from that tree. And it's called, uh, you know, the Ustuwana, right? The uh, uh, Hanana. If when you go to Riyadhul Jannah in, in, in Madinah Munawwara, when you're leaving Riyadhul Jannah, you know that garden from the gardens of paradise between the member and the house of Rasulullah. When you're leaving, about to leave, and you're about to go towards to say salam to the Prophet, and there is this little, um, uh, you know, a golden gate as you leave that area. If you look on the pillar, all the way on the top, it's written there Ustuwana al Hanana. That's where Rasulullah used to lean against that pillar. Ustawana means a pillar. Hanana is the one that cries a lot. Because when Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi stepped away from that pillar and went and ascended on the newly built member and the newly built pulpit, the entire group of Sahaba could hear the crying of that pillar. Piece of wood. They could hear it crying. And the Prophet Sallallahu then went and hugged it. Right? Hugged it. And you know, tapped it the way you tap a crying baby. And then he said, if I'm not mistaken, had I not done this, you would have been able to hear its crying till the day of judgment. SubhanAllah. The Prophet went and consoled it, right? So these, these there were all of these things were crying for Rasulullah. But there were mir- miraculously a few instances when the crying or the tasbih was, be, was able to be heard by others. Similarly, Rasulullah is mentioned that the hasa, what's this? Pebbles would be doing tasbih in the Prophet sallallahu heart. Uh, sorry, in his hand. One thing, what uh, Sheikh Sharawi mentions, which is amazing, he says, don't say that uh, the tasbih was only of the hasa of the pebbles was happening in the hands uh, of the Prophet, because he says the hasa, the pebbles would make tasbih even in Abu Jahl's hand, huh. in any hand, because that is not anything to do with Rasulullah or Abu Jahl. It's to do with. The pebble, that the pebble is making tasbih is just the miraculous nature of Rasulullah that he was able to hear those pebbles doing tasbih. Otherwise, the pebbles were doing tasbih everywhere. That's an amazing point, isn't it? That to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it prostrates everything in the heavens and the earth. To Allah, what it, uh, to Allah uh, you know, every single thing in the heavens and the earth proclaims His greatness. So there are many other examples that these scholars of tafsir give of how things which are apparently not living do actually have some sort of sense. That's all I'm trying to say here. Right? So, Arada, that's mentioned about how this wall is about to topple over. When he said, uh, have you, Had you wished you could have at least taken some ajar, pay for it. I wish you had charged these people labor fees. So with that money, we could have bought some food. That was done. You're going to you're gonna have to eat on your own. Khadr told Musa, This is the parting between me and you. This is the parting between me and you. So, I shall now tell you the reality of the interpretation of all that you could not abide with patience. Those things which you could not wait to, to hear and understand, I'm gonna let you. Alhamdulillah, that was nice of him. That was very nice of him. That he said, At least I share this with you before we depart. Ta'wil means interpretation, sabra means patience. Tastati'a means able. You are not able to remain patient. I'm going to inform you 
of those things right now. So I think how he says this is separation, inshallah, maybe we can call this a separation between us now. <laughs> and then next week, huh, we can uh, cover up those points before uh, we move on, if Allah wills, inshallah, to the next story of the um, Dhul Qarnayn. Um, the last story of, of, uh, of Surah Al-Kahf, inshallah. And as we are, as we are um, uh, coming to the, the almost nearing the end, maybe another two, three weeks of, or so of Surah Al-Kahf, if we can use this as an excuse to get a higher attendance, that would be great. Alhamdulillah. You know, we had such great attendance at the beginning. Uh, 250 people or so, alhamdulillah, in the first week. And then slowly, slowly, as it happens, naturally, people, you know, start dwindling away. So, I, uh, there's nothing new here. It's the same thing. We just need to encourage people. If all of you make, a, uh, make this uh, azam, inshallah, to invite at least 10 people next week, inshallah, and tell them the tafsir of Surah Al-Kahf is coming to an end. You never know. Uh, they may just one, t- one lesson and one of these tafsirs might be a solution to the problems that anyone may be going through. This is the Quran. Every ayah, every verse, every page has solutions to our problems. Isn't it? So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us amongst those who understand the entire the Quran. They're able to benefit from the Quran. We're able to benefit from Surah Al-Kahf. May He make myself and all of you from amongst those that, who recite Surah Al-Kahf on a regular basis. May He make it a means of protecting all of us from the fitna of Dajjal. May He make it a means of protecting our children uh, from the fitna of Dajjal as well. Um, so that's that. And then Tuesday nights, um, uh, Monday, not, mo- I'm sorry, Saturday mornings, we are continuing to have our team Fajr. I mean, I'm telling you brothers, you know, you cost nine, ten dollars to go eat and some, you know, halwa puri. Here you have halwa puri plus another 20 items. All provided complimentary with your brothers of the masjid and sisters of the masjid. Alhamdulillah, with a talk, with dhikr. It's a great way to, to start off your weekend. I uh, encourage all of you to please make a habit of coming here, inshallah, wa ta'ala, uh, Saturday mornings. And Thursday nights we have our Durood Sharif. These are the three weekly programs. Also, there are laptops outside. Uh, so those of you who have, who, uh, I encourage you to purchase your uh, tickets to the benefit banquet that has been moved now to February 19th. Due to the uh, spike expected to be at the end of January, we've moved the dinner benefit banquet from uh, the end of January to inshallah February 19th. So if you have not already, um, uh, if you have not already purchased your ticket, please do so right here outside uh, in the, on the kiosk or in the laptops. And those of you who are listening online, mashallah, many, many brothers and sisters listening online, alhamdulillah. If you can take a moment, also one of you can post it in the chat and you can please uh, uh, purchase your ticket. And if you know anyone who would like to advertise their business uh, and give sadaqah, market their business to the Muslim community, please reach out to them. Tell them they can become a sponsor of this event. Through this sponsorship, what happens, all our overhead costs are covered. So if you have someone who's selling vitamins, someone who's a travel agent, someone who's selling some home service, a physician, whoever, a dentist, wants to utilize this opportunity to advertise to 1,500 people, and in our community across the Chicagoland area, they can do so uh, by becoming a sponsor and uh, by putting an ad in the ad booklet, by putting, showing a video at the event or, or putting a booth um, or putting their logo and their business advertisement on our website. Become a sponsor and inshallah through their donation, all of the overhead costs of the event are taken care of so that every dollar that you purchase your tickets with, alhamdulillah will go straight to uh, this, uh, the, the, the projects that the masjid and the seminary have. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make this and all other programs successful and accepted and in his in a, in his sight. Amin Rabbil Alameen. La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam La ilaha illallah La ilaha illallah La ilaha illallah La ilaha illallah 
لا إله إلا الله 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 محمد رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم صلى الله على محمد 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 صلى الله عليه وسلم استغفر الله 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 